supporting WHYY Penn Medicine, helping to find new cures for cancer. With life-saving clinical trials and advanced surgical techniques, Penn Medicine is offering more hope for patients everywhere. Learn more at pennmedicine.org slash cancer. Penn Medicine, what's next? From WHYY in Philadelphia, this is Common Space, a collaboration between first-person arts and WHYY. Welcome to Common Space. I'm your host, Jamie J. of First Person Arts, and this is a place where real-life stories speak to the pressing issues of our time. Breaking news, we go back to the Supreme Court for the another major decision. Out of I am one of the 11 million undocumented here illegally living in the Those shadows of the United States. What he basically was filming. The flood of humanity making its way across Europe is mostly made up of refugees. Not just like bad people who are coming like terrorists. We are humans. We have feelings. So please help us. Immigration is all over the news, and I'm feeling a little bombarded by the headlines. But don't worry. No matter what the news cycle brings, we're here at Common Space with storytellers, poets, and roundtable talk with the Common Space crew and special guests to delve a little bit deeper into the immigration debate. You know, when I think of immigration, I think of that lady standing in the New York Harbor with that torch in her hand. The port of entry at Ellis Island, with its famous Statue of Liberty, is where so many of our immigrant stories began. And today, I'm visiting the home of one of America's great poets and someone I'm blessed to call my friend, Sonia Sanchez, to begin our show on immigration called Home of the Brave, with a special reading. Hello, Sister Sonia. How are you doing, my dear sister? Now, you're known across the world for writing 17 books of poetry, but also for your iconic reading style. Would you read for us the poem etched in the base of the Statue of Liberty to start out our conversation about immigration? That would be an honor uh, to read the piece. It's called The New Colossus by Emma Lazarus, not like the brazen giant of Greek fame, with conquering limbs astride from land to land, here at our sea-washed sunset gates shall stand a mighty woman with a torch whose flame is the imprisoned lightning, and her name Mother of Exiles, From her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome. Her mild eyes command the airbridge harbor that twin cities frame. Keep ancient lands, your storied pomp, cries she with silent lips. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. 
Thank you, Sister Sonia. Now let's go back to WHYY for more Common Space. The Mother of Exiles. We know her as the Statue of Liberty. She's still a powerful symbol. But my question is, has the promise of welcoming people to our shores ever been an easy one to achieve? I mean, what really happens once you get here? Prejudice. They face prejudice. Every wave of immigrants has been dehumanized and told that they are going to destroy America. Okay, by the way, everybody, that's Dan Gashevsky of First Person Arts. They were told there's no way they would ever adapt and become a part of the United States. And when you look back at it, it seems silly to say, oh, the Irish will never become a part of the United States. They'll never integrate. For Ben Franklin to say, oh, this dark-skinned Germans can no sooner become American and they can change Wait the complexion minute, of their Are skin. Are you telling me that at one point German people were considered dark-skinned? Well, some of them. This is from something that Ben Franklin wrote in 1753. So this is even before the Declaration of Independence. Here we go. Why should Pennsylvania, founded by the English, become a colony of aliens who will shortly become so numerous as to Germanize us instead of our anglifying them and will never adopt to our language or customs any more than they can acquire our complexion? That's Ben Franklin. Wow. Yeah. And in the second point, the next paragraph that he says is, which leads me to add one remark, that the number of purely white people in the world is proportionately very small. So he is calling Germans non-white. And that's something that happened all the time. The Irish were non-white. Mexicans were considered white, according to law, before Irish people were. So to Ben Franklin, Germans were not Europeans, or they weren't white. Their skin color was something different. Basically, there were white Germans and non-white Germans, which is something we would not even recognize today. And that was Ben Franklin. Mm Mm-hmm. That's how deep it goes. I'm Jamie J, and you're listening to Home of the Brave on Common Space. And today, we're inspired by real-life experiences of immigration. Hey, check out this mix. I'm just an immigrant with a little bit of hope. Got a little bit of money and hopped on a boat. I've had enough. My old life was too tough. Getting roughed up by the government and stuff. We call that oppressive, arrested for no reason. The police would beat me for speaking my opinion. And on top of that, no freedom of religion. This life I've been living, something's got to give in. Desire for adventure and better jobs. This hip hop immigration, baby, I can never stop. That's why I'm selling on this ship to a better place. I don't care where, to New York or to outer space. That's when the boat stopped, top off at Ellis Island. Let's go back, man, you all That was the remix of the notorious B.I.G.'s Big Papa, called I'm Just an Immigrant, from Mr. Wilder Productions. Now, you know, the journey of immigrants has always rested on hope for a better life. But that hope, like the kind we just heard expressed in that song, often runs smack dab up against the legal entanglements of our immigration system. I'm thinking of the case of Namisha Ladva, who told her story at a recent first-person art story event. So I'm going to tell you the story of how I became an American. 
This is the real story. It's the one I have never told in public until today. It starts when I was 21 years old. I'm a senior at UCLA. It's tank top weather, but I'm wearing jeans and long sleeves because I'm kind of awkward and self-conscious and very much the daughter of my immigrant parents. I am so naive and inexperienced, I've actually never had a beer. But on this day, I'm in Los Angeles Federal Court, and I'm in the basement, and I'm being arrested for the second time. I am an illegal alien, and I am turning myself in. When I was 12 years old, my parents came to this country on their visitor visas, fully expecting to overstay and build a life in this country. My father naively believed that if they just came here and applied themselves and worked hard, they would find a way to become Americans. That is not how immigration law works in this country. Eventually, they found that there was one possible chance. If we turned ourselves in as illegal aliens, we had the right to a hearing. And at that hearing, if the judge said yes, we could stay and become citizens. If he said no, we would have to leave. There would be no going back to the lives we had built in America. We had to convince the judge on three grounds. One, that we had made meaningful ties to the country. Two, that we had good moral character. And three, that the deportation itself would cause undue harm. There was one problem. Because of my age, I was no longer included in my parents' we. They had a business here. They employed citizens. They had a child born in this country. I had none of these things. My only chance was to have my case heard on the same day by the same judge and hope that the strengths of my parents' case would inform the decision made on mine. But my paperwork got last, lost after my first arrest, and that's how I found myself in the basement of L.A. Federal Court. I should tell you that the basement also doubles as the jail. So when I'm down there, my arresting officer asks me to button my shirt all the way up to my collar. And then he leads me past men in shackles who thrust their hips at me obscenely. They are close enough that they can lick the air around me. My mugshot is so small you cannot see the cold sweat of fear on my face. So I sign a paper that promises I will show up for my hearing when I'm ordered to do so. It takes two years. But my date arrives. Our attorney informs us that in Los Angeles, there are seven judges who sit on the federal immigration bench. Three of them, he tells us, they are really just looking for a reason to let you stay. The other three, they need to be convinced, but we have a pretty good case. The last one, the last one he tells us has a nickname. He's called the hanging judge. On the day of our hearing, we're gathered in the cafeteria. 
my dad is working the room because we've invited people to come and support us. And I'm looking around, and he's giving coffee and foam cups to people. And I see, I see my roommate and her mother. I see the retired teacher couple who gave my parents money when we ran out. The husband, he's an avid hunter, a Republican, and an NRA supporter. My parents, they're pretty liberal, and they're lifelong vegetarians. But these are the people who saved us. And then I see my attorney. He walks in. Listen, he says. We got the hanging judge. There's no going back now. We have to get to court. It's noisy to move 30 people from the cafeteria to the courtrooms. So people are starting to come out of their cubicles and their offices wondering what's going on. It turns out it's pretty unusual to have 30 people show up to a deportation hearing. Our attorney just takes it upon himself to walk through the hallways announcing, hey, all these people here today, they're here for my, my clients, this family. And we're marching down to the courtroom. My dad is holding the door open so people come in, and suddenly there's a loud voice behind him. Shut the door! We turn around. It's the judge. He's already angry. My dad lets go of the door and sits down as he is told to do so. The judge is looking at the paperwork. The first thing he says, these people are immediately deportable. There's no reason for a hearing here today. Why are you wasting my time? The prosecuting attorney who represents the Immigration and Naturalization Service stands up. Your Honor, Your Honor, in light of the people who seem to have shown up for this case today, I think we should hear it. The judge grumbles, but he lets the bailiff call order, and my dad takes a stand. He answers some questions. Witnesses are called. A psychologist takes a stand. He talks about my brother. He's eight years old. And he's having nightmares because he's afraid he's going to be separated from his family. That we will abandon him. So the judge is upset and um, he tells my dad to sit down. He says that's enough. He doesn't want to hear anything else. Then he looks up from the papers and it's clear he's made a decision. Well, he said, in light of all these people you've stuffed into my courtroom today, the deportation is canceled. It's amazing. People get up, they're screaming, they're shouting, they're crying. Everyone is so happy. Everyone is crying except me. Because I realize he's taken my case in his hand. Okay, don't worry. Later in the show, we'll have the conclusion of Namisha Ladva's literal trial and tribulation in the U.S. immigration system. I'm Jamie J., and you're listening to Common Space on WHYY. Hey again, beautiful ones. 
I'm your host, Jamie J, and we are here at WHYY, table talking with the First Person Arts and WHYY Common Space team. That's Becca Jennings, Dan Geshevsky, whom you've already heard from, and Jen Cleary. Also with us is WHYY's Mike Villers and Elizabeth Perez Luna. Let's assume that there's a person who really doesn't want to have anything to do with immigrants. It bothers them. They're Americans. This is this thing just goes against the grain, you know. Can you spend a whole day in which you would have absolutely no contact with any immigrant anywhere you go? Not in Philadelphia. Yeah, certainly. No, probably that, not the East Coast, yeah. probably not the West Coast. So where would you encounter, where would be your point of contact with different immigrants? Oh my God, it could be anywhere. It could be your, your doctor, your lawyer, yeah. it could be your cab driver, it could be the guy at the gas pump. It could be you your know. mirror. Yeah, it could, could be your boss. Your mirror <laughs> could be your boss. You know? Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, immigrant yeah. people are at every every level of society contributing amazing things. I'm Jamie J, and we're here talking about immigration stories. Well, if there's one guiding principle to common space, it's this. Everybody has a story to tell. Here's Grant Hollis. So there I was, minding my own business in New Jersey. One thing about New Jersey, for those of you who are not Jersey residents, is that you cannot pump your own gas in New Jersey. Have you guys heard this? And this is why there are bumper stickers that say, Jersey girls don't pump gas. Because they're not permitted. In fact, no one is. You show up at the pump, and and, and you kind of have to stick your credit card out the window, and the guy kind of picks it up and goes and puts gas in your car. And really, at the end of the day, you don't care that much, because it's not really all that emasculating, because you didn't want to really pump your own gas anyway. So... I was coming home from class, and I I looked at my gas tank. I needed to stop for gas. I pulled over, and it had not been a very good day at class in particular. I had felt stupid on a number of different occasions and was not exactly in my happy zen place. And when I showed up, the person came and took my credit card, and I handed it out the window, and I was kind of in my own little zone, and he went and started pumping gas. And after a little bit of time, I started hearing water. And I looked and found that the gas nozzle was in my car, but it was just pouring out on the sidewalk right there and there. And the guy realized this, and he ran over really apologetically, and he, he was kind of like, oh, oh, I'm so sorry. Here, let me fix this. And I, being in a really patient mood, as you could imagine at that point, said, no, just let it be. Which, at one level, is a really nice, surfacey thing that doesn't really mean anything that bad. But underneath, what it really said is, you imbecile, you're a very poor gas attendant, and I really don't like you. <clears throat> and I drove home, and I had that feeling in my stomach, you know, that very healthy feeling of guilt when you know you've hurt a person, and you know that it wasn't the right thing to do. And I got home, and I really felt awful, and I really, I, I really am thankful that that exists in me. The next week after class, I went back to the same gas station, and I showed up, and the same guy was there, and I thought to myself, oh, please don't recognize me, and he showed up, put the uh, gas nozzle in my car, and started pumping my gas, and I I got out of my car, and I said, so how's it going, and he said, it's fine, and I said, "Uh, has your day been busy, no, it's not very busy, and you can see in his mind, he's used to being treated like a machine, 
And I said, so how long have you been working here? And you could see him pause. About three months, he said. Oh, really? Uh, How did you get started? (laughs) Well, he said, I, well, I was in Afghanistan. I was from Afghanistan, and uh, I came over here. And he proceeded to tell me a story about the chaos that he was living through in Afghanistan. Because it was kind of a chaotic place. It probably still is a pretty chaotic place. And he told me this really complicated story that I didn't really understand about how he got to the United States and got in maybe sort of legally. And he came to the States and was trying with his family to find a place to find a job so he could pay for things. And the only job he could get with his English not being superb and the fact that he really didn't really have exactly real citizenship was a job pumping gas for people in New Jersey. And about that time, in the fuel booth where, you know, they have the credit card machine and everything, a head pops up. And this head it belongs to his son. And he sa- the son says, hey, daddy. And, and he goes, hey, I'd like to introduce my son. His name is Shaheen. And, and Shaheen comes out of there, this little second grader comes out of there, and he says, I'm good at math. Because, <laughs> of course, he is. And he comes and he brings his worksheet to me. We have this little moment. He brings his worksheet to me. And he says, this one was tricky. And he points at six plus six which is a tricky one. It's greater than 10. And about that time, I start hearing liquid again because the gas tank once again overflowed. And he said, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And he went um, and dug through the trash can and found an empty pop bottle and went and filled it up with the windshield wiper fluid and washed off my car by hand with windshield wiper fluid from this trash pop bottle. I was rather touched. And I, I, I said, what is your name? He said his name was Abdul. And uh, after that, every week, I would stop by to get gas at exactly that place. I'd make sure even if I didn't need gas, I would go and get gas just so I could talk to Abdul and see Shaheen most of the time and hear how school was and what life was like in the United States and hear his stories, which were just absolutely absurd. And it made me think that the more you understand that every person is human, the more you begin to understand that everybody has a story worth telling. Thank you very much. Grant Hollis is a frequent performer at First Person Art Story Slams. You're listening to Home of the Brave, on Common Space, a collaboration between WHYY and First Person Arts. And it's supported by the Pew Center for Arts and Heritage. I'm Jamie J. And today, we're inspired by real-life stories of immigration. My new life was looking bright. I just might be an immigrant, but it's my life, all right? I'm just an immigrant living in a tenement. Pay no attention to this place that I'm living in. I'm just an immigrant living in the ghetto. In overcrowded neighborhood in New York. Let's go. I'm just an immigrant trying to get a new start. And there's another verse of I'm just an immigrant. You know, when I hear it, It makes me think this is a land of immigrants. Truthfully, all of us came from somewhere here, except for the indigenous people. But at what point does one stop being an immigrant and start being an American? So my family 
the majority of our heritage is Scottish and English. But to me, I, I have trouble identifying with people who have a really great pride in a nationality that, you know, where they don't live is mm -hmm. it's so distant by generations. We just haven't maintained that sense of culture. I mean, we have a Jennings kilt, you know, and like somebody went on vacation to Scotland and came back and the whole family now has like this certain plaid of a hat with a pom-pom on the top of it and a kilt and like we're all decked out. But aside from the costuming, which sits and collects dust in the attic, we don't really have an emotional connection to that. You know, we don't have, you know, an Irish flag as a bumper sticker or, you know, so I, I have trouble relating. That was Becca Jennings from First Person Arts. When we have this immigration conversation, it's generally from the perspective of how Americans feel about immigrants. I mean, we rarely have a conversation or we certainly don't have enough conversation about what it feels like to be here from someplace else. March 1st, 1977, that's when I dropped on the scene. Four years prior to my sister Charlene, just like a dream baby, I was born in mama's hands. Bombay to USA, emigrating from the motherland, the son of a government gynecologist. You don't even know the politics of how the dollar twist. Traveled down to Mississippi, all the way to Hawaii, then back over to California where my soul forever lies. So I grab the mic and pre-medically meditate, and as you segregate, I contemplate the meaning of my race. You delineate a road for me to take, a path for me to follow. Yes, I know it's crazy hard for you to swallow the truth because it hurts that I'm coming up for salvation from my birth living life on this beautiful earth what you see is what you get but do you get what you see I'm on a quest for the real reality huh. that was Karmacy with their hit single Outcasted like the rapper in the song our HYY colleague Sri Devi Sripati was born in 1977 she's the first generation South Indian whose parents emigrated here in the 70s so, Shredevi, what was it like growing up in an immigrant household? You know, the word immigrant's really interesting when I think about it because I never really had this relationship that I've ever thought of myself as a daughter of immigrants even. I've been here my whole life. I consider myself so very American. But when I think about it, there were some really key differences about what it was like to grow up in that household and then walk out this door into this very American world. You know, we had certain customs and certain values and, and traditions that we would do, and I would walk out and realize, oh, wait, not everybody else is doing the same thing that I'm doing. And then it also became something that I got made a lot of fun about. You know, a lot of people mocked me about being Indian. I remember being in middle school, and, you know, there was this movie, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, that came out, and there's this uh, iconic scene in the film of Indian people eating monkey brains. And I just remember how many kids would come up to me and ask me if I ate monkey brains all the time. And, you know, everyone gets mocked in middle school for something. But when it's the color of your skin, like, there was no way the brown was coming off. Whereas with other kids, maybe they could at some point lose the weight. Maybe they could get rid of the glasses and get the contact lenses. Maybe their hair would grow out. Maybe they would go taller. But for me, there was really actually no escaping that. Wow. Was there ever a time when you didn't feel like the other? You know, actually, it's really funny. Uh, I'm from California, and I lived in Silicon Valley. So in the 90s, there was this huge tech boom, and a lot of immigrants from India were coming over, a lot of Indian engineers. 
And I remember at one point going to a movie theater, just a regular old American movie theater showing like an American movie. They weren't showing an Indian movie. And the lights come up and I look around and everybody around me is Indian. And I just remember going, wait, what just happened? Am I in (laughs) India? Like, where am I? I had never seen that many people who look like me in my life. And it was the first time I started experiencing kind of this larger, larger Indian community around me and going everywhere and seeing so many different people who look like me. It was really cool, actually. Thank you, Shadavi, for your stories. Thank you. Now, we've held you all in suspense long enough, so let's get back to Namisha Ladva's journey through the U.S. immigration court system. You'll remember that when we left her, the quote-unquote hanging judge had ruled that Namisha's mother, father, and younger brother could stay in America, and her supporters in the room were overjoyed. It's amazing. People get up, they're screaming, they're shouting, they're crying. Everyone is so happy. Everyone is crying except me. Because I realize he's taken my case in his hand. And the first thing he does is slam it to the bench. You're kidding me. Right? You're kidding me. Because like this case, this case truly has no merit. My attorney gets up. Your Honor, it's clear that this young lady is part of the family we just heard from. She's just had a few birthdays, and her case has to be heard separately. You think this is a birthday party for the girl? Let me ask you a question, attorney. How long have you been an attorney in this country? My lawyer is dangerously red in the face. But the INS prosecuting attorney stands up. Your Honor, I think we should hear this case. So I'm called to the stand. I take an oath to promise to tell the truth. The prosecutor asks me some questions about what I've been doing. And I tell them that I've been a student at UCLA. He asks me if I've ever had a job here. And I start to sweat. The truth is, for the last few months at UCLA... I took an office job. I want to explain that I am really sorry I did that. I was applying to graduate school and I didn't have money for my applications. I want to explain that for the four years I have been at UCLA, I have been borrowing my roommate's clothes and just for once I wanted to have my own jacket in my own size. I am so scared. The judge asked me to answer the question. Have you worked in this country illegally? Yes, sir, I have. I see my father's face. He bows his head. He didn't know. My attorney gets up to offer some character witnesses. The judge tells him to sit back down. I am so afraid. Where will they send me? Will they send me to India, where my ancestors are from? I've never lived there. Will they send me to Kenya? I was six weeks old when my parents moved from Kenya to England. And then I realized they'll send me to England, where I can be a Paki again, where I can be the brown girl on the bus that no one will sit next to. The judge calls the attorneys to the bench 
sends them to sit back down. I'm all alone on the stand. I'm looking out at the people who have shown up for me today, on that day. They are white, they are black, they are Mexican. Some are educated, some are rich, some are working class. They are all strivers, they are all dreamers, they are all American. I look at the judge, I can tell he's made his decision. This way or that way, stay or go. Who will I be without a home, without my family, without my friends? And then I see that the judge is looking at the people as well. The order to deport is canceled. I am so excited. I finally let my tears fall. I'm finally home. I'm Jamie J, and you're listening to Home of the Brave on Common Space at WHYY. So now you're here. What's the next hurdle that immigrants have to clear? The language hurdle. We at Common Space are blessed to have two beautiful Latinas on our Common Space team. Elizabeth Pears Luna from HYY and Jen Cleary from First Person Arts. One born in America and one not. Now Jen, Jen Cleary does not sound like a Latina name. No, I I know. Um, Because my name is Jennifer Cleary Rubinos Hill. Well, I've heard that your name is not Jennifer inside your house. <laughs> no, it's not. My grandmom refers to me as Jennifer. Jennifer. Uh, she can't pronounce my name. There's no way to say that right. I mean, I remember being a kid and we'd go out to run errands with my abuelita and we'd be in a store and my grandmom does not speak English. She's been here since the 50s. And so we speak Spanglish to each other all the time. And I remember when we'd be in a store and I'd speak Spanglish to her. And she'd tell me, don't talk to me like that outside the house. Because we get treated differently by everybody regardless of their background. You know, we'd be in a restaurant and it's usually my mom, myself, and my grandmother. I will sit at the table and my mom will usually just order for my grandmother because she can't order in English. And there's that... I don't know exactly how to say it, but you do get treated differently when you don't have access to English. And people look down on you, especially a woman who's been here for a really long time. She'll get a lot of hardship, even for me as a kid. You know, I used to get on her a bit because she still doesn't know English. And now that I'm older, I understand better, you know, the implications of, of coming to this country and educational levels and all these things that that occur but yeah you can't stop people from treating you differently when you don't know English now Elizabeth 
Conversely, you have a Latina name, Elizabeth Perez Luna, and you have what we all consider an accent. How does that make your experience different from Jen's? Well, I remember people felt a little weird uh, because I do have an accent, but it's not completely defined. Um, my mother was French, so we spoke French at home. I spoke Spanish, too, of course, I lived, when I lived in Latin America. I've been here most of my life. But, you know, I relate to uh, uh, Jennifer's story because I have a friend who practices keeping his accent because he thinks it defined it. So accents are complicated. But it's very funny because I'm a radio producer, and I always say I hear people telling me, oh, I wish I could hear your reports, but I don't speak Spanish. And I think it's funny because I don't produce anything in Spanish. So it's the assumption of your name and the slight accents. I don't think it's malicious. It's not understanding that this is a very complex country. So I I really think that I'm very American because this is what we're, you know, our colleagues are surrounded with. We're all dealing with different ways of enriching the language with words and accents. And uh, there's something very beautiful about that. Uh, and uh, I'm very proud to be what I am. Accent or no accent, Neheta. <laughs> Perfect. Patsy Villafon is the middle member of a household of three generations of Lao women. She told a story at a translation slam about her Lao family and the layers of language each family member has to navigate. They speak varying degrees of Lao and English in the household, or as the family refers to it, Laolish. For all intents and purposes of this story, I speak two languages. English, obviously, and Lao. Language for me is very important. It remains one of the effective ways to communicate if done properly. Ever notice when you go to a restaurant and pronounce the food right, the kind of treatment you get? There are certain words and phrases that cannot be precisely translated into English. And to be honest, there are certain words and phrases that just sound better in other languages. But language especially for diaspora-born children, keeps us closer to a culture we may not be exposed to anymore, a country we may never visit again, and family members we may never meet. I live with my mom and daughter, Aditi. My mother speaks Lao, but very little English, and Aditi speaks English, but very little Lao. I was raised speaking Lao to my mom, so that is what I speak with her. With my daughter, I use English because that is the language I am more fluent in and therefore more comfortable with. Yet when they speak to each other, they use a completely different language, broken English. Aditi, tell me about tomorrow, what you're doing for International Day. Uh, we're going to bring food. What kind of food? Sticky rice, and we're going to make 25 Who's making them? My grandma. Is she making it right now? 
No, she's going to make it at 9 o'clock tomorrow. Can you ask her what she's doing right now? Okay. What do, what do you do right now? What? What do you do? I clean every day. You don't want me clean, okay? To my daddy. She said um, she's cleaning. Mm. Now everything, you have mm. a problem. I tell you, listen mm. to me. So technically, broken English is not a language. It's still English, just with an accent and a few extra grammar rules removed. For people like my mom, it is speaking English the best way they know how. For my daughter, it's an intermediate level of understanding. Listening to her navigate between the English she uses with me and the version she uses with my mom is an obvious attempt for her to relate. Unlike the mock English that American actors generically use to portray racist characters in movies, which, by the way, gets played out in real-life situations, the broken English my daughter speaks is a well-observed imitation, a sound-for-sound copy of what she hears when my mother speaks. It's another means to communicate with someone, someone she happens to love. When my daughter was born, I had assumed that my mom would teach her to speak Lao as she had with me. At first, it seemed it was going that way. Aditi's first recognizable word was oi na, which is the Lao equivalent to the Yiddish oi ve. Her first English word, which showed up some months later, was meatball. But as time passed and watching cartoons became a daily habit, English soon surpassed Lao, and my mom gave in, or gave up, depending on how you look at it. So there were a few factors as to why three generations living under one house do not share a common language, or why two of them choose a vernacular that isn't easy for either of them to speak. First, the transition between Lao to English can be tricky. Lao is a tonal language, so meanings are dependent on the tone. For example, gao 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 to an unfamiliar ear may sound like the same word being repeated three times. But in actuality, what I'm saying in Lao are the words for scratch, proceed, and the number nine, respectively. The Vianchan dialect, which my mother speaks, has six tones. Low, mid, high, rising, high falling, and low falling. At six years old, Aditi cannot differentiate this, and when I try to explain to her the separate meaning for each same-sounding word, it sounds like a trick question waiting to happen. Secondly, there is no need for Lao. When I was a child, as far back as I can remember, which was about the age of five, I was my mother's translator for everything. I share this distinctive trait with all children of immigrants, particularly and especially because my parents were refugees. In their decision to leave Laos during war, there was no prepping or preparing, no time to learn a new language. I suppose it's an innate belief of refugees that if you can get by with very little, then you can survive. My mom and Aditi still have their routine. In the meantime, I've accepted this Laulish is how they talk to each other. This secret language amongst family that others try to duplicate but cannot decode. 
There's some folks who tell you, I love yous are for white people. This may be true, but to that I say, or as my mom and Aditi would put it, thank you. It's a truly creative and innovative way that many immigrant households with several generations living under one roof work with and shape the language so that they can communicate. I think about Laulish, Spanglish words, Yiddish expressions, and so on. I mean, they swirl around us and enrich our language. Add to it the rich inventiveness of African-American idioms and how we have shaped the language to work for us. And that's what speaking American is all about. And it's beautiful. This is Home of the Brave on Common Space at WHYY. I'm your host, Jamie J., and we're talking about immigrant life. So we invited writer Ross Gay to share his poem about a real immigrant story, one that could only happen in Philly. To the fig tree on Ninth and Christian. Tumbling through the city in my mind without once looking up, the racket and the lug work, probably rehearsing some stupid thing I said or did, some crime or other. The city, they say, is a lonely place until, yes, the sound of sweeping. And a woman, yes, with a broom, beneath which you are now to the canopy of a fig, its arms pulling the September sun to it, and she has a hose, too, and so works hard, rinsing and scrubbing the walk, lest some poor sod slip on the silk of a fig and break his hip, and not probably reach over to gobble up the perpetrator. The light catches the veins in her hands when I ask about the tree. They flutter in the air, and she says, take as much as you can, help me. So I load my pockets and mouth, and she points to the stepladder against the wall to mean more. But I was without a sack, so my meager plunder would have to suffice. And an old woman whom gravity was pulling into the earth loosed one from a low-slung branch, and its eye wept like hers, which she dabbed with a kerchief as she cleaved the fig with what remained of her teeth. And soon there were eight or nine people gathered beneath the tree, looking into it like a constellation, pointing, do you see it? And I am tall, and so good for these things. And a bald man even told me so when I grabbed three or four for him, reaching into the giddy throngs of yellow jackets, sugar stone, which he only pointed to, smiling and rubbing his stomach. I mean, he was really rubbing his stomach, like there was a baby in there. It was hot. His head shone while he offered recipes to the group using words which I couldn't understand. And besides, I was a little tipsy on the dance of the velvety heart rolling in my mouth, pulling me down and down into the oldest countries of my body where I ate my first fig from the hand of a man who escaped his country by swimming through the night and maybe never said more than five words to me at once, but gave me Figs. And a man on his way to work hops twice to reach at last his fig, which he smiles at and calls baby. Come here, baby, he says, and blows a kiss to the tree, which everyone knows cannot grow this far north, being Mediterranean and favoring the rocky, sun-baked soils of Jordan and Sicily. But no one told the fig tree or the immigrants 
There was a way the fig tree grows in groves. It wants, it seems, to hold us. Yes, I am anthropomorphizing, goddammit. I have twice in the last 30 seconds rubbed my sweaty forearm into someone else's sweaty shoulder, gleeful, eating out of each other's hands on Christian Street in Philadelphia, a city like most, which has murdered its own people. This is true. We are feeding each other from a tree at the corner of Christian and Ninth. Strangers maybe never again. You know, it's very interesting, this business of being an American. And it requires adaptive skills for everybody, whether you were born here or not. It's navigating language and customs, balancing traditions and memories. And more often than not, I think we all, at the end of the day, are proud to be part of this country. Which leads me to a funny story I really love. Rebecca Rickard's Lifeline. So um, every artist I've ever known has had one, at least one of two terrible jobs. They've either worked as a barista at some pretentious coffee shop or a camp counselor at, you know, some underfunded and overpopulated terrible summer camp. Uh, with some badass kids. It just always happens. And uh, fortunately for me, five years ago, my first summer here in Philly, I worked both of those jobs at the same time. (laughs) So every day I would wake up and I would bike into Center City and I would work from 5 a.m. to noon serving coffee. And then I would bike back west and I would work with the kids from lunchtime until 6 p.m. And lunchtime was complicated because it was a really poor district, so sometimes the food truck just wouldn't show up, and these kids would have no lunch. Or even worse, like, the food would come, but it would be spoiled from sitting in the heat for so long. And so I would have to, like, immediately confiscate, like, all of the juice boxes, because they were fermented, and these kids would be, like, getting turned up on some, like, apple juice, you know? Like, (laughs) there was always the chubby kid in the corner, like, hoarding five boxes of juice, like, slow sipping, like, "Mm, this is good, you know? But, you know, there was no AC in the building, and you know, sometimes no lunch, so hands down, the best part of summer camp was going to the pool. And pool is a generous word because it was literally a concrete dugout that was two feet deep all around the pool. So there was no deep end, there was no slides, there was no floats, no toys, no nothing, just knee-deep water all around the pool, right? And the pool was super small, so we had to, like, send the kids in, like, little organized groups and rotate them every 20 minutes to, like, prevent heat stroke. And so... But that wasn't the scariest thing about the pool. The the scariest thing about the pool, no doubt, was um, for whatever reason, they felt like they needed a lifeguard, you know, in this two feet of water little pool. So in the corner, there was this giant tower, and uh, on top of the tower, there was this little five-foot-nothing Latina lifeguard. Her name, I will never forget, was Matia Rosa Blanca, and she went by Rosa, and she was terrifying. She was so, so scary. And at the, every time we went there, she would make all the kids line up on the edge of the pool, and she would go over her rules. And I swear to God, these are her rules. I'm going to try to say them just like her. She said, okay, today in my pool, there's no running, no jumping, no diving, no dancing, no splashing the water in my face, <laughs> no pissing and no punching in my pool. And if you do, I'm going to drown you. <laughs> swear to God, she said, I'm going to drown you, right? And these kids, and she said, okay, have lots of fun, blow the whistle. And these kids were like, sit there, like, oh, my God. You know, it would take them three minutes to get in the pool. And then once they did, they were like, it took them ten minutes to figure out how to, like, submerge themselves under the water because they're like, 
trying to like splash the water, like side dip into the water. And, you know, and by that time, it's time to rotate. So they blow the whistle, and now they're rotating, and she makes the kids lines up on the pool again. She goes over the rules again. And as the day progresses, she adds more and more rules because she's just irritated, right? So she says, okay, second group. There's no running, no jumping, no diving, no dancing, no splashing the water in my face. And there's no pissing, and there's no punching. And if you wash your nasty Cheeto hands in the water again, I'm going to drown you. <laughs> and so here we go. We get in the pool again. She wasn't always mean, but, like, sometimes she tried to be really fun and nice. And she would, like, organize group games. She played a game of uh, Duck, Duck, Goose once, which went all kinds of wrong because this kid got, like, donkey kicked in the back of the spine. And... So like now we're only allowed to play like duck, duck, but no goose. So these kids are like standing like duck, 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 like an endless game of duck, duck, goose. But one time, yeah, as you can imagine. Uh, and one time Rosa actually did save someone's life. She really did. I saw this. And this kid, um, he fell under the water and he had swallowed a lot of water. So he was panicking. And I saw Rosa at the top of her tower. She was texting at the time. And she looked down. She was irritated, kept texting. And then she looked again, she was just annoyed, and she was like, hey, hey, just stand up, it's like two feet of water, okay? <laughs> Stupid, you know, <laughs> like, oh my God. So, um, you know, at the end of the day, like six rotations later, she would make everyone line up at the edge of the pool, and she would go over her rules again to prepare them for the next day, right? And by this time, there's like 10 new rules, right? She keeps going on, she's like, okay, so listen, tomorrow when you come to my pool, I don't want to see no running, no jumping, no diving, no dancing, no splashing the water in my face, no pissing, no punching, no Cheeto hands, and no donkey kick to the back of the spine, okay? If you do, que I go? And they all yell, you drown us, because by now they know what's up, right? <laughs> <laughs> and then so, so she says, okay, everybody grab hands and stand up. I got one more thing to say. And at this point, I'm like real nervous, right? Because she gets her megaphone out. And I mean, I've been nervous this whole time, but like now I'm extra nervous because she has like a megaphone. I'm like, oh my God, what's about to happen? So uh, all these kids stand up and she says, okay, everybody repeat after me. I am, and they say, I am somebody. And they say, somebody. And she says, no, 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 no. Say it again. I want you to say it like you mean it and say it with pride. I am somebody. And they all say it out loud. I am somebody. And... They mean it, and I believe them. And she says, you know, that's right. And don't let nobody tell you otherwise, including myself. <laughs> and it's so crazy because with all the yelling and all the rules and all of the bad pool games and the death threats, you know, like, <laughs> that is what the kids hung on to, like, for real. And, you know, Rosa taught us, <laughs> taught us, taught me and the kids, like, no matter who you are or where you come from, you are somebody. And that is exactly the lifeline that they needed, so. I am. I am. Somebody. I'm Jamie J, and you've been listening to Home of the Brave on Common Space, a collaboration between First Person Arts and WHYY. On behalf of the entire Common Space team, thank you so much for joining us to hear our stories. And don't forget, we'd like to hear yours. 
go online to acommonspace.org. That's acommonspace.org. We want to hear from you. Common Space is a place where true stories speak to the pressing issues of our time. It's produced at WHYY by Mike Villers, with contributions from the First Person Arts staff, Dan Gashevsky, Becca Jennings, and Jen Cleary. The executive producer of Common Space is Elizabeth Perez Luna. Common Space has been supported by the Pew Center for Arts and Heritage. I'm Jamie J. Brunson. Please call me Jamie J. Reminding you that everybody has a story to tell. So two years ago, I'm at the doctor's office getting a checkup, and the doc says, tell me about your background. And I say, well, my mom is Cuban, my dad's Irish. And she straight up looks at me and said, how did that happen? Wow. Right? I know. So I look at her and I say, well, sometimes when a man loves a woman very much, they get married (laughs) and have some babies. And then a couple years later, they're sitting here in your office. (laughs) 